Welcome to Private Club Radio, the industry's first and only program dedicated to education, news, events, trends and announcements. Broadcasting from Tampa, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Gabriel Aloisi. So what does every club manager need to know? That's the subject of this week's episode as we chat with Whitney Reed Pinnell, president of Reed Consulting Services. During our conversation, Whitney will take you through each facet of the business and explain some of the core competencies that managers should have from the first steps to becoming a leader right through how to evaluate and grow as a leader. Whitney also has a passion for food and beverage, and she'll offer her best advice on running that side of the business. And today is the second installment of The Inbox presented by Club Essential, where Rick Coffey will join me to answer your questions right here on the show. It's going to be an action-packed hour or so today, so stay tuned for that stuff. Now, thanks to your help spreading the word, this show is starting to grow in popularity. And as this show grows, I'm continually trying to make improvements to the show experience so you can get more out of the time we spend together. And to that end, I want to announce a really cool feature that I think you're going to love. We've made some updates to our website so that now you can search the guest database we're collecting each week and sort interviews by subject matter. If you're interested in listening to shows about club management, you can find all of those in one place just by hitting a topic button now. And the same thing for food and beverage or for membership and marketing or for any subject that you're interested, just hit the topic button and we'll sort the episodes for you. So now you can actually binge this show Netflix style on the topic and the subject matter that you want to hear. We're really excited to bring that new feature to you. Check it out on privateclubradio.com. And now it's time to open up the inbox presented by Club Essential. Well, it's episode number two of Private Club Radio's segment called The Inbox, presented by Club Essential. And once again, I am joined by the man, the mystery, Rick Coffey of Club Essential. Rick, welcome. What's been going on in your world? Uh, very good. I, I'm so pleased with the response from the first episode. Done some traveling recently, went to Cape Cod in the Long Island. Uh, just been good. How about you? Oh, yeah. I was actually as well in Cape Cod, and I went out to Nantucket. I was at the Westmore Club. We were going to do something kind of special, have a profile piece on that club, something new for Private Club Radio, so it's going to be something different and something a little more fun for people. What do you think about this week's questions, Rick? Yeah, you just posted them for me to see. This is incredible. Uh, Kudos to everybody out there for these. Uh, I'm excited to answer these. Yeah, we got some good ones, so let's let's get Mm -hmm. right to it. Question number one. Hello, this is Crystal Tanfield, the Director of Member Relations and Marketing at the Union League Club in New York. During the summer months, our pipeline drops as our members seem to disappear and leave the city. So my question is, what interesting and creative programming have you seen to encourage member referrals during the slow season? Uh, very good question there by Crystal, and I, and I agree. When I was in Chicago, that's obviously a seasonal club as well, so I understand this question. First thing, uh, you just need to know who's actually in town and, and not. If you're just guessing, you know, guessing's never good. So what I tried to do is actually find out who, which of our members were actually staying in town. And I think you'll probably notice that most clubs around the country, you're going to find that the younger members are going to be the ones sticking around during the off season. And so for me, I would then start to tailor the events towards that demographic. Oftentimes our clubs would then start to do more child activities. We would ramp up the babysitting, try to do date nights there. 
And we would get a lot of a lot of times those younger people, if they're able to do a date night, they're going to bring out their friends as well, which is great because that's the younger demographic that most of us are looking for at the club. So that's what we would do. But then secondarily, just in terms of being able to get member referrals, I always try to be very visible to my members so that they knew either if it's in season, off season, if they had somebody interested in the club, that they knew how to get in touch with me and that they knew that they could trust me with that referral. So a couple things, know who's in town, start to you know format your programming towards that. And then, you know, just make sure your members know who you are as a sales professional so that they can get you that referral easy. My best advice is to give you a couple referrals of some people that have actually been on this show. The first being Dan Schmitz of KE Camps. He actually comes into your club and runs a full service camp that is done for you. So he might have a culinary camp for kids. He might be a tennis camp, whatever the case may be that fits with your membership. So that's KE Camps. The second idea I have for you is his name is Nick Weir, and his company is called Little Owl Entertainment out of Nashville. And Nick is friends with all these touring artists from all over the country, and they'll actually come to your club and put on a big concert, a big event. Uh, but he says it's not just an event, it's an experience. So check out KE Camps and Little Owl Entertainment. I like where you went there, Gabe. I mean, I've seen two performances by some groups that Nick put together. Unbelievable. I think that would wow your membership any time of the year. So really well done there. Question number two. Trial memberships made their way around the club industry uh, around 2008 with the crash, Gabe. And they're still around today. They're heavily used, you know, maybe more often than not. What is your take on a club utilizing a trial membership? Well, I really feel it's a double-edged sword, right? So on one hand, you have people that maybe are sitting on the fence, and this is kind of what gets them over. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you've got the people that are just looking for a cheap thrill. Maybe I see these so often as a summer membership. So you have a trial summer membership, and they just yeah. want to use your pool for the summer. And it's a cheap way to get in, get involved. And you know, fall comes, and the season comes, and they're gone. So I really feel that the cons outweigh the pros on this one. I think that your time would probably be better served and your energy would be better served actually trying to build the brand value for your club. And what I mean by that is to make your club look more attractive to your target audience so that they are dying to open up their wallets. Um, So rather than trying to attract those cheap members um, that, that may or may not convert, Spend that time and that energy looking for the perfect member out there for you that's really going to gel with your membership, and I think you'll be a lot better off. Right. I'm going to agree with you there. I would say overall I've never been a fan of the trial membership just because oftentimes when a person doesn't have any skin in the game per se, not paying initiation fee, there's not much there to keep them uh, when you start to ask for the initiation fee and such. Uh, I, I will say, though, if a club has tried you know many other things – a trial membership, as long as it's done well. And what I mean by that is you said, you know, a club can't just offer a summer membership. You know, that's just not going to be right. So what I've seen more is clubs doing a longer term trial of maybe a full year so that the person's going through an in-season and an off-season, you know, and then they may have the, the time for them to join come the next spring, say in the north, so that that person has an enticement to join because the season's there right in front of them. So, uh, again, I agree with you. Not the best thing, but, you know, if, if they haven't tried everything, it might be worth a shot. You're the guru, Rick. So I will. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. 
Question number three. Our next question comes from Leah Bathgate, founder of the Alberta Golf Tour in Canada. Can you give me examples of social media strategy and how each club's membership base may dictate what it is? For example, where is the line drawn on posting to public forums such as Facebook and Twitter for potential members to see what it's like to be a member at the club? And then where does member privacy come into play? Excellent question, Leah. Thank you for that. Uh, so at my clubs, you know, it was tough. The strategy was generally dictated by the membership committee. So I would listen to their concerns. And, you know, generally the members are going to have concerns about privacy and such. So I would try to step in and talk, you know, more on a membership and sales professional level, try to let them know that it wasn't as scary of a thought as possible. And, you know, the social media is reaching so many people, especially in that younger demographic that we want. Biggest thing for me is nothing to ever be posted that could be seen as a sales pitch. I think that's my biggest thing as a strategy base. What I always try to do, and I, I think the best people around the country do, is just sort of raise the shades to their club, let people see in, see what's going on. And so you often see image-heavy uh, photos on Facebook, Instagram, showing events at the club, people having fun. Those are the kinds that I kind of things that I really like with social media at a club. Just give people a sense of what's going on there. Let them naturally uh, get excited about it and make sure that they have a way to reach out to you uh, to find out more about the club, whether that's going to the website or if they can get, get in touch with you through a hashtag, something like that. And then finally, member privacy. Generally, that's written into the bylaws of a club saying that if you're going to join the club, we have the right to use your name and likeness. Uh, my biggest thing is if we had some young kids on a, a photo that I wanted to use, I did reach out to the parents and get their permission beforehand. What's your take? Well, I think you're spot on there in terms of privacy. So I'm going to get more into the actual content and the social media strategy. So for me, user-generated content is really the holy grail. The main focus of a club's social media channel should be to stimulate that conversation and to get members talking. So it's 10 times more powerful for someone else to tell your story for you, for your members to tell your story for you, rather than you trying to sell an experience. So your role as this social media channel manager should be one of a facilitator. How do you actually do that in practice? Don't make so many statements. Don't show me exactly what you're doing. But ask questions instead. Ask members to share their favorite story or a memory that they have at the club and let the members actually generate that content and get those conversations going. If you can start doing that, if you can start facilitating those conversations, you're going to be well on your way to having a really active and powerful social media experience. Yeah, I think you just laid a gold nugget there, uh, Gabe, with a, you know not making too many statements let the conversation organically grow that's well done question number four all right so our next question rick is how many times should you follow up with a lead before you consider it a dead end right in my wheelhouse gabe thank you for that question so uh, a couple things here on this i think you know too many people give up very very quickly on this and i think that's one of the biggest faults with newer salespeople is they get one or two no's and that, that person is is forgotten about for me I, I would certainly try to get at least four to five no's before anything but the biggest thing that i talk to my salespeople that i consult with about is Try to find the true objection. People will give you all sorts of reasons why they can't. 
but generally there's one big thing that's truly sticking, keeping them away. And for a private club, it's oftentimes financial. So our goal as salespeople here is to build value, continuously build value by the services, the amenities that we have at the club and letting them know the benefits of that. And if we can add that value and rise that up, oftentimes that will then take over and, and erase that true objection of, I just can't afford the club. So Yes, certainly you got to you got to continue on with this. You got to make your communications relevant to that person. Um, but I would say too many people give up way too early and search for that true objection and then do all you can to overcome that. Sage advice, Rick. I Thanks. came across a pretty interesting stat a few weeks back that said 80% of sales are made on the 5th to 12th contact. And that really struck me by surprise. And what it went on to say was that only 10% of people, salespeople actually follow up more than three times. So my rule is I keep following up, but I'm not always sending them sales messages, right? I want to keep delivering them value. If I can continue to keep, deliver them value and stay at the top of their mind, they're not going to begrudge my emails. So what kind of value do I provide? I give them tips and tricks. I send them industry reports or I give them useful tools that they can use. If I'm giving somebody value and I keep giving and giving and giving, it's a lot different of a conversation than just trying to get a sale. So if you're doing it that way, I feel like the number can really be infinite. Now, that's that's really well done. And every time that you're giving somebody something, you're actually building some capital there in their mind. I mean, if you're sending them content that they're they're reading and taking in sometime down the road, they're going to say, hey, you know, this guy's been on me a long time. Maybe we should go look at this club. So that's I right. like that. You're on your game today. I've made sales like years later after yeah. my first contact. That's just how yeah, it works. Yep. Good feeling when that happens. Question number five. I got another good question here. Uh, how narrowly should you define your target membership prospect? Well, I'm a big believer in getting very narrowly targeted. So at a maximum, okay. I would choose, uh, we, I would go age range, right? So maximum, I would say 10 years. And I hear membership directors often say, well, my target member is anywhere from 35 to 65. And that to me is just too big of a range. Okay. I mean, there is a perfect member out there for you that will really gel with the club. And so the more narrow you can get, the better. So again, age range of about 10 years. If we're talking income range, I'd keep that pretty narrow as well. Here's an example. I, you know, Clubs that maybe their average member makes 500,000. Maybe you want to okay. go as low as 250 or 300,000 and then as high is 750,000. But I wouldn't say just anyone over that makes over 250,000 because again, that's just too broad of a description. And in the the more narrow of a net we uh, of a target that we can go after, we'll still attract some of those outliers, but we're going to get much more of the people that we're actually looking for. Uh, of yeah. course, they need to have a golf interest or a tennis interest or something that your club is known for. So I'm a big believer in getting very narrow. Well, I'll, I'll agree with you there that you do need to narrow down so that you can, you know, customize your message. Uh, I almost look at this almost like a dynamic group, and I'm I'm using that from the Club Essential platform that of our websites. We can narrow down dynamic groups of our membership that we want to send email correspondences to. So I do think you need to be targeted, but I also think as a sales professional, we need to be able to change our, our approach very quickly just based off the, the narrow demographic that we're looking at. There's not just one set of club you know, prospect that's going to join the club. It's going to be a wide ranging, uh, you know, from single to couples to young family to older. What we need to be able to do is to, as professionals, switch our game 
customize everything so that we're showing the maximum benefits for that group. You know, and with a CRM like I, I work on day to day, we're able to capitalize on that data because it's in the CRM. And so if I need to send an email campaign to an older demographic because we're having a, a concert of the Bee Gees out at our club, I can do that very quickly. But then, you know, if we have something that goes towards the millennials, I'm able then to send an email correspondent that's very customized to that group very quickly. So I think you're on the right path with being very narrow, but there's there's going to be a lot of those different groups and we need, need to be able to flip flop back and forth and be on our game for each of those. Fantastic stuff, Rick. So I got one last question for you before right. we wrap up this segment. Rick, it's summertime. I know you're doing some traveling uh, with the wife and the family. Are you a soft serve or a regular ice cream kind <laughs> of guy? Or do you actually break convention and go fro-yo? Unbelievable question. I mean, I just had this conversation my, with my wife out at Cape Cod. Um, so I'm going to say I'm, I would generally lean towards soft serve ice cream. But my favorite ice cream of all time, I don't know if you've ever had it, is the Superman ice cream. And I've never seen that in soft serve form. So if I see Superman, I'm going for the hand scoop Superman. If they don't have it, I'll probably go with a soft serve twist or something like that there. You know, but uh, you can't go wrong in either either route, I don't think. Yeah, I am a definitely a handmade ice cream guy. So they always catch me the ice cream shops that will say all our ice cream is made in-house uh, from scratch. Those are the ones mm -hmm. I look for. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I go for. I'm not really a soft-serve guy. My wife is. <laughs> um, she likes the soft-serve, but I, I like the traditional. I'm a traditional kind of guy. I, I love this question. For those who were on the first episode of The Inbox, our random question was about skinny jeans, and now you can see, hear the passion about our ice cream inside of here. So I think that's uh, a little bit telling why neither of us are using skinny jeans. These days. <laughs> that's exactly right. I'm not, I'm not putting on any pairs uh, after, no, a, no. after a double <laughs> scoop. <laughs> <laughs> Great questions. Uh, excellent episode. I can't wait for next month. Absolutely. Rick, thank you again for being on the inbox presented by club essential. Want to be on the next edition of the inbox? Visit privateclubradio.com slash inbox and leave us a voicemail. The best questions will get answered on the show. Whitney Reed Pinnell, president of the RCS Group, joins us today. She has over three decades of hospitality management experience with hotels, resorts, restaurants, and private clubs of all types and sizes. She expertly facilitates workshops with awareness of diversified backgrounds, experiences, and agendas using real-world experience to illustrate the main points. Whitney's unique club operations, renovations, tournament coordination, and strategic planning experience provide her a current perspective of the club industry through real-world solutions. We're really happy to have her on the show today. Whitney, welcome to Private Club Radio. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, I want to talk to you about some of the core competencies and skill sets that every general manager really should know. And I was hoping you could kind of take us through those today, if that works for you. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have talked about this subject and uh, we're out working with clubs every day. So we see it as well as your other guests. But, you know, I, I sort of boil it down into outside of the managerial skills of, you know, financial acumen and understanding how clubs run. I mean, certainly that's very important, but also personal development, uh, not only of themselves, but also their staff, especially in our ever changing world and uh, through use of technology. Um, also, I think having and understanding a chain of command and providing tools and resources and training for staff to make empowered decisions, because, 
in the club business, especially, I think it's important that everyone at the member level of service needs to be able to make a decision right then and there without, without a lot of uh, red tape to get through or phone calls to make to be Absolutely. able to handle a situation. Yep. Um, so, you know, once you get through uh, some of those items, then obviously get into leadership skills and certainly managing a multi-generational membership and staff right now. Um, I, I think, you know, EQ, IQ, all of those things, understanding different personalities, understanding people's expectations and how they're shaped by their demographic group. I think that is really something everyone is talking about today, mm -hmm. especially the uh, younger generation of, of members and younger generation of employees. So I think that's a new twist on our business that everyone is uh, really in tune to right now. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. I'd like to dive deeper into all of these subjects. But first, I'd like to kind of ask you, how did you come up with this concept? I'm, I started my business in the middle of my management career. So I, uh, I sort of represent a demographic group of membership, probably that people are trying to find right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we work a lot with uh, everything from the board level, to committees, general managers, all the way down to the staff level. So we, you know, our training programs and our consulting, we're really working with all the different groups and different, uh, you know, different levels of management, different levels of staff. And I, I just find it fascinating to understand what shapes people's perceptions and how they take in information, how they use the information. So the way that we communicate today and go about training or communicating with members is much different than it was, you know, when I was a manager. Absolutely. It's completely yeah. different. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, the first skill set you mentioned is personal development. So what are some of the things that managers should be doing when it comes to their personal development, Whitney? Well, I think it's, it's extremely important and it's always been at the top of my list uh, for everyone, certainly in my company, for myself and anyone I've managed. And that's a commitment to continuous improvement. And I, and I don't mean that it's constantly recreating the wheel, but it's constantly being open to new ideas, open to new ways, looking at uh, new and different ways to achieve the same result. And certainly with technology today, there's so much more we can do, but we have to be open to learning it and continuously improving not only ourselves, but operations. Excellent. Excellent. And like you said, there's just so much change happening. Uh <laughs> How do, how do managers mitigate all these different changes and how do they stay abreast of all the different things that are happening and changing so quickly? That, that is a great question. <laughs> well, everyone's inundated with information. I mean, certainly, and, the, and you know, this is part of our communication age. Everyone takes in small snippets of information and, uh, you know, you really have to hit the high notes. And that's something that, you know, I think everyone's been doing. The, the, the old way of communicating and, you know, the long drawn out meetings uh, big service manuals, those sorts of things. They're not really um, working the way that they used to. So mm -hmm. with with technology, as you know, there's so much more potential. You know, there's so much more potential to get the same amount of work done or, or send a similar message and obviously using technology, but not losing the personal touch that's so critical to private club service. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think you're right. It does. It can it can get lost when we get into this very impersonal world that we live in. We have all these devices and all these uh, software programs and things that we can really get trapped by. Uh, so it's it's you yes. got to keep remembering that it's a people business in the end. It is. It <laughs> is. And, you know, one thing I have definitely noticed uh, 
from a from a management standpoint, and I'd say certainly from a general management standpoint, managing this uh, multi generation workforce, the communication has to be as multifaceted, I guess. Mm-hmm. Some people take in information uh, in a written way. Some people need the one on one. Some people need it. Uh, be an email or a text or something like that, but certainly the ongoing conversation needs to continue to happen. And the youngest generation that I see in the workforce today, they they really are anxious and want ongoing feedback, which is something I think a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of tenured general managers have a hard time with because you're not providing that ongoing feedback on a regular basis. Next on our list, you had mentioned that managers really need to establish a chain of command and a way of empowerment. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's um, it's not always easy in a club because you have uh, boards of directors, committee members, and sometimes they want to walk up to someone and give them immediate direction. So it's real important to uh, continue to manage the staff and help them understand the dynamics at a club and what to do with that information you know, from a feedback standpoint, it may or may not be something that a staff member needs to act upon or a manager needs to act upon. So just understanding how to filter that information, work in the dynamic of a private club, and how to make empowered decisions with the feedback you're given. Is it something that you need to act on? Is it something you need to take to your manager? And and really helping to protect how the information should flow through the chain of command. And how do you develop a skill set like that? How do you, do you come up with a policy and procedure? Do you do some sort of a training where you learn, you know, these are the things that you need to bring to the manager and these are the things that you can deal with on yourself? How do you actually go about that, Whitney? I think there has to be training around the understanding of the chain of command and who does what. And, um, you know, when we work with general managers and boards in a workshop, you know, a strategic planning workshop, we're very clear. We have a chart that says, you know, who handles what. So, there's no misunderstanding and, and blurring of lines of who's giving direction to the staff or the, the uh, mid-level management on a daily basis. So just establishing expectations from that point. And then, yes, I think that continuing that training downward, and it's really an everyday, <laughs> an everyday practice in clubs, as you know, because once someone gets some feedback, they may take action. It maybe it was the right thing. Maybe it was the wrong thing. Maybe it can be improved, mm-hmm. but you have to continue to have those conversations so everyone can learn. But, you know, for me, I, I think just the understanding the dynamic of a club is, is really important. And it's something that's really shaped all of our training programs because we constantly talk about member equity clubs and how a member is continuing to make an ongoing investment every day every month at the club. And because of that, they're a customer and a member in front of you at any given point. Um, I'm sorry, an owner and a member at any given time. So each of those perspectives can come into play with a conversation or their feedback and, and trying to understand that and know what to do with that information. So I think it's, it's really more of a conversation um, and ongoing training, understanding your customer and not just that they're a member and, you know, a higher level of service, all of that, but really helping to understand they view themselves and they are a part owner of a club. And even if they're not a part owner, even if it's a real estate developer or a private owner club, they're still making an investment into the club through their dues or fees or assessments, anything like that. And that, and that changes their perspective. 
Yeah, it's a delicate dance for sure. <laughs> so your bo- your boss is also the customer. It's a, it's yes. a strange dynamic that's unique, to, unique I, to private you know, clubs. There, there are not a lot of businesses like that. I, I, I'm hard pressed to find one. But uh... <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any other examples, <laughs> at least. Yeah. Um, so you have some some steps to actually becoming a leader. There's some first steps. Can you tell folks a little bit about those steps? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I uh, I love reading books about uh, successful leaders, successful managers, uh, sports legends, everyone. And, you know, there's a few uh, common items that I think all of those uh, people, uh, common characteristics they all have. And the very first one, I think, is being able to contain your own emotions around anything that's happening, you know, not to lash out, not to overreact, but to contain your emotions, be able to take in information, assess the information, um, have a little bit of empathy for uh, other people and have some compassion with the situation. You know, it's it's a little bit different between a manager and a leader. You have to be a little bit more in tune to other people, try to see things from their point of view. Um, but, you know, over the years, what I found is certainly working in clubs, you could never judge a book by its cover. And it's so important to get to know people and understand uh, the people you're serving and also the people that you're managing so that you can make the greatest impact as a leader. Absolutely. And what else, apart from sort of those things, would you say that would be some really good characteristics and some good traits that these leaders need to learn? Well, certainly uh, from a management standpoint, understanding financials. Um, I, you know, I came from uh, hotels and uh, resorts and uh, public restaurants and, and those, those businesses were really taught to use our financials and understand how they work and what roadmap it paints for you. And what I find is sometimes managers, as they, as they work up the, the ladder, sometimes they don't get that information or they don't really uh, use it in, in the maximum way that they could. You know, So we do a lot of statistical uh, data study, we track trends, um, understanding what that information is telling you. And that's something I, obviously that's critical to running any business, but certainly in a club environment, because uh, it can get away from you so quickly. Um, the next thing I, I think is, I mentioned it before, is um, emotional intelligence. Uh, not only being smart about your work, but also being smart about people. And we are in the people business. And I find that this is probably the most challenging aspect of what we do. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of questions about it, you know. So I, I think trying to understand uh, where someone's coming from, how, you know, you need to understand and try to walk in their shoes a little bit and understand their perspective, how they're feeling and, and, and tap into that. And that's not something that's always comfortable for people is understanding the feelings and try to, uh, manage those emotions while also influencing them to get done what needs to be done. And then I'd say the last thing, you know, and it's the number one on my top 10 training list, and that is to hire, right. Sure. And that 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 is not always easy to do, especially um, in this business. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of people, everyone will probably they'll probably admit that they've done the warm body hire along the way. And, uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> probably uh, tell you, you know, the stories of what happened because of that. But really, it all starts with hiring the right person. And to me, it's not necessarily uh, just the skills and experience you're looking for. To me, it's it's really the personality and character traits that you need to to fill out your team, and that will work with your team, work with your members. And 
you know, certainly in our business, I have always looked for adaptability, work ethic, uh, a great attitude, and someone who's naturally hospitable. If, if someone can come to me with those skills, or those characteristics, I could teach them just about anything, but I can't teach them how to be hospitable or how to be friendly or have a good work ethic, you know? Um, Absolutely. Those so, are intangibles. When I'm doing yeah. hiring myself, it's the same thing. Uh, I just recently hired a, a guy that works at my company and, you know, he had passion and, and a desire and a motivation that you can't put a price tag on, you know, maybe his mm-hmm. skill set wasn't where I would like it to be, but that's something I can train. Whereas I can't train passion and and love and, and those right. sort of intangibles. So I think you're, right. you're absolutely right about that. If you're looking, if you're doing hiring, or if you have some advice for general managers who would be hiring some of these folks, how do you mm-hmm. actually find those intangibles in them? You know, what, what, what are the clues that you would hear during the interview process for you, Whitney? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, before I ever go into an interview, I do a, a quick little needs analysis, just, you know, what am I looking for in this position? And I write down those characteristics and then I structure a few questions around that. So, you know, like you mentioned passion, I might ask them some, you know, tell me about your greatest accomplishment. And, and, and let them talk about something that they've accomplished. And, and you start to see if they have a passion for it. What is this passion? What were they willing to sacrifice to achieve that? You know, why, why was it important to them? I think that starts to give you insight into their personal values and their own characteristics. Um, then, you, you know, I, I ask questions, very open-ended, uh, behavior-based questions is how I was taught many, many years ago. And I still use it today. But you know, tell me about a time that you had a conflict with a coworker. You know, what what happened? What did you do? What did you learn? There's a, there's so many different follow up questions you can get from that, but that will tell you maybe if they have compassion, if they're a team player, if uh, they view themselves as a superstar and somebody else wasn't pulling their mm-hmm. weight. You know, you and then sure. you start to look for patterns in their in in their answers, and also obviously you have to watch body language and. Uh, listen to the words that they use. I, th- I think the words that people use in their body language often tells you a lot more than their actual answers. Absolutely. I, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, when we, when we uh, teach about high performance hiring, I always tell people, you know, the interview starts the minute the person arrives on property, you don't, you know, but they think sometimes that the interview starts when they get into the office. So, you know, I encourage people to meet them out in, you know, maybe out in the parking lot as they're walking in, walk in with them, walk them around, see if they're naturally friendly to people, see if they happen to notice if if a picture is crooked, you know, anything like that. But as you walk around, you might, uh, are they real easy with conversation or they're being very quiet? You know, that might tell you if they're naturally hospitable and outgoing or not. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different ways to interview, but certainly the, the most important thing is to be prepared and, and structure your questions around those characteristics you're trying to find. Now, I want to ask you, you had mentioned something about empathy, basically having to walk a mile in someone's shoes. Mm-hmm. How do you develop that skill set? That seems like one of those soft skills that's not, not so easy for people to develop. But how, would you, <laughs> how can you go about that? What, what kind of training do you do to start to become a more empathetic person? Well, that's a great, great question. And I don't, honestly, I don't know that I have the, uh, the secret, uh, the silver bullet for that one. Sure. Um, but, but I think certainly 
having conversations with people, you know, as you're, as you're working with managers, some people, you know, one of the things that we teach about is personality styles. And some people, it's just very hard for them to empathize. It's just not natural to them. So it is a learned behavior. It is something that you have to teach them, you know, maybe to ask questions, you know, or try to understand, you know, what are they feeling? Uh, what, what is upsetting them? You know, when we talk about situations, uh, with our training programs, we always tell people like, you know, try to figure out what is the situation in, in terms of how, if you could take a picture of it and put it in a frame, what would that be? So sometimes that helps them just to put the emphasis on what, what they need to be looking at more than what they may be focused on. If that makes sense. Oh, that absolutely does. And so once you have all these skills, are you then all of a sudden the best general manager in the world, or do you need to continue your education and development? Well, I, <laughs> I personally think there's always, uh, there's always something to learn, you know, um, and, and, and there's so much out there there and there's so many great people out there and I, I love hearing people's stories i love uh seeing how they do things that's that's one of the great things about what we do we get to work with so many different people um and you know if you look at the best managers the best leaders in our business they're constantly learning they're constantly evolving they want uh more information you know we get called by uh say a platinum club and they'll call us to come to a club evaluation just because they want to be sure there's nothing else. So I, I think it's important never to uh, be stagnant. I th there's even some quote out there about, you know, probably thousands of quotes about mm -hmm. what happens if you stand still. But I think you constantly have to be moving forward. You constantly have to be looking for new and different ways. And, you know, with the the club business and, and all the different generations that we're serving, we have to keep kind of refreshing but hold true to our traditions. And that's another challenge I think everyone has. So you're constantly looking to refresh your operation, refresh yourself, refresh your programming, um, but also stay consistent to, um, you know, what the members bought into. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned in the beginning here about the EQIQ. That's not something I know too much about. So I'd love for you to explain that to me and the listeners. There's an everyday ongoing coaching and development that goes on from a general management standpoint to their staff. And then also the emotional intelligence that you need to understand when a member is standing in front of you and asking you a question or they're in need of something, but really trying to understand what is it this person needs in front of me. And, you know, if anyone uh, listening has ever been to one of our service training programs, we focus on making people feel welcome, comfortable, understood, and important. And I say it over and over and over every day because those four things mean something different to everyone. So if you can get into the mindset of, you know, how do I make this person feel comfortable right now? How do I make them feel understood? How do I make them feel important and welcome? Then you start to hone in on those emotional skills that, that really help you with managing and serving people. Beautiful. I love that. Now, you have a concept that you call service-based leadership. Can you explain that to us? Sure. Um, I just put something out the other day. It was a great quote. And it said, if you're not willing to serve, you're not ready to be a leader. Um, you know, for me, I believe that obviously service-based leadership means that you are serving your employees, you're serving your staff. And while doing that, you're helping to train and develop them. You're helping to coach them every day. You're, you're constantly evaluating and helping people grow. 
you know, when we're in management, and if you, if you haven't really uh, looked into leadership skills, in management, we're taught to look for ways to fix things, you know, fix things, manage things. And, and it's very hard to uh, just be a manager in this business. You have to really be a leader and you have to focus on your people because there's so many employees that actually have more time with the members and your customers than you do as a general manager. So giving them the resources, the tools and resources that they need to continuously improve themselves and serve the members, I think is critical. Um, One of the things that um, we talk about a lot with, with managers is the concept of coaching. And I call it coaching because sometimes having difficult conversations with employees or mid-level managers is difficult because it's uncomfortable. But when you start thinking about yourself as a coach who's there to help develop someone's skills and really focus on their strengths and put the best team together, you start viewing your role a little bit differently. And I always tell people, you know, when you have those difficult conversations, you actually are showing them that you care about them Mm -hmm. and you need to let them know that you care about them. And that's why you're having this difficult conversation. So, uh, you know, to me, service-based leadership is a constant commitment to developing the people that work with you and helping them to be the very best they can be by serving their needs. Right. And how do you go about evaluating those uh, staff members? What, what recommendations do you have for evaluations and, and seeing what people are, if people are improving or, or staying stagnant in their careers? Sure, sure. Well, there's so many tools out there uh, for ongoing evaluations. I'm a fan of, you know, just ongoing uh, evaluations. Certainly uh, an annual review is good to have. You know, but uh, I see a lot of managers sometimes when they do their annual review, it's a big surprise to the person on the receiving end. And I don't think that's really fair. I think that walking into a review process or an annual appraisal, the the employee, the the manager, the employee, whomever's on the other side should know what's coming because you've been having these conversations. Um, I, I personally am a fan of setting up goals every year. Um, I was, I was trained that way with hotel groups, you know, that you set goals every year and you break that down into, you know, your annual goals into quarterly goals and quarterly goals into monthly goals. And Mm -hmm. then you break those out, you know, and um, I think certainly for employees or mid-level managers or any manager looking to move up the ladder, that's a great way for them to evaluate their progress. You know, if you don't, if you don't have those goals, if you don't have a target, you really don't know where you're trying to, trying to go. So. I think I think creating sort of a step by step action plan for, you know, what are, what are the skills or experiences I need and creating when you're going to achieve that, that that gives you your greatest success of, of, of doing it. I like that idea. So rather than relying on your general manager to tell you what what goals and, and how to reach them, you actually come up with them yourself and, and, and do some some self-evaluation there. I like that concept. Thank you. Yes, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, you know. I personally, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in personal responsibility mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I feel like if, if there's something that you want or there's something you want changed rather than wait for someone to do it or, uh, point out problems, I used to always tell people, you know, if you have a problem, come to me with a solution also. Right. Um, and I think that helps to develop people as well, because if you're constantly giving them the answers or, or, um, you know, just feeding them the information information, they never learn to do it for themselves. And this is 
a business where you really have to be able to think your way through just about anything. But, um, you know, I always tell people that you should seek out information, you should own it, you should take responsibility for your uh, career path and development and, and ask your manager for help, but don't expect them to put it together for you. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. So the last skill set on your list here is learning how to manage the 19th hole. Of course, food and beverage <laughs> being a huge component of our private clubs. What is some of your advice, best advice on that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I put food and beverage in here for uh, club management because it's, uh, you know, lucky for me because we we do a lot of food and beverage consulting and training. I, l- lucky for us, not a lot of people uh, either like it or understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think certainly in managing a club, every everything at the club has some sort of component of food and beverage, and and every member eats or drinks. Uh, not everyone plays golf or plays tennis or works out or goes to the pool, but almost everyone experiences food and beverage at the club at some time, and you need them to because that's really the social hub of the club. That's where a, a lot of the social engagement comes from. Uh, but managing it. If you don't understand how to manage it, and uh, you know, it's not just the management of the numbers, but it's also managing of the staff and helping them to make good decisions, because there's a lot of gray area in food and beverage, and really all of club management. There's a there's a lot of gray. You can't say that you, you know, open at seven a.m. and if someone comes in at six forty-five and wants some coffee, you have to know that you know we need to get them some coffee and make them feel welcome, comfortable, understood, important. Absolutely. Um, but, but, but I, you know, I have food and beverage there because I, um, over the years, like I said, I've built a business around it. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy to manage it. And no two clubs are the same. Every club food and beverage operation is different. And the way I always describe it to people is everyone has the same puzzle pieces for food and beverage. You know, there's only so many things that you can do or should do within food and beverage management, but how you put those puzzle pieces together is different at every club based on your operating model, your membership, your location, your vendors, you know, your, uh, your debt structure. There's so many different factors that go into putting your operating model together. So, you know, I always recommend to managers, you move from one club to the next, you can't take the exact same way that you did it from one to the next. You have to adjust and change for each club environment. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in the food and beverage department right now in terms of, um, I know we've had some folks in the show talk about casual dining being a big trend. Are there anything else out there that you're seeing? <laughs> uh, that's a huge trend. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are building more bar space, actually. Um, I see that quite a bit. You know, uh, clubs, traditional clubs are, are fairly notorious for having small bars and maybe multiple small bars in different locations. So um, along with the casual dining, I'm seeing a lot more uh, social bars, a U-shaped bar, or a square bar, you know, but something to really bring people in, bring them together. Oh, nice. Um, also, I think there's, you know, big change in menus. Everyone's seeing it, but certainly this new target market of members, this, uh, I'd say, 30 to 45-year-old uh, age group that everyone's trying to target for membership they want the food and beverage to be more like the restaurant down the street and maybe less like what we would consider traditional club fare. Sure. So um, th- they're putting a lot of pressure on, uh, you know, more cutting edge menus, 
uh, different products, obviously, you know, the local organic, all of those things are on uh, club menus today and a lot more uh, getting into craft beers and uh, mixology in the bar. So we see that too. And again, you know, it really depends on the club and it depends on the region and location. So are there any uh, pockets of the country that you think are really driving um, some of these trends or you're seeing some really interesting things happening from? Um, that's a good question. You know, I probably see it more, uh, on the West coast, uh, and, and possibly for coastal areas, I'd say, okay. really, if I, if I had to think about it, I'd say kind of coastal areas, but, you know, we're working with a club right now in California and, um, they, they have, uh, several new food and beverage concepts coming online. They're, they're going to use the beacon system, you know, when a member, gets within a certain radius of the club, they'll get push notifications if they've signed up for it. They're going to uh, have apps for ordering, you know, um, at the pool, you mm-hmm. know, so if somebody wants to order at the pool. So we've traditionally thought about that more at the halfway house or on the golf course, but there, you know, people I think are looking more to other areas. And I, I think the members will continue to evolve and change and, and, push clubs in different directions. And, uh, you know, you see it now, a lot of clubs are reevaluating their dress code policy, their smartphone policy. And, and I think they'll have to continue that as they go with the, with the members that are coming in, because this is just how they live now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you're trying to go after millennials and those younger members, they live on their phones. Absolutely. They do. They do. And, uh, you know, I, I just had a conversation the other day with someone that was, um, a controller was getting very frustrated that at the halfway house when, when they didn't have a customer come up, the young lady was on her phone and she just was, you know, the controller was so upset about this. And I said, you know, you're just, you're viewing it differently because we used to let them bring books in, you know, but now they do everything on their phone. Probably reading a book on their phone for that. It could be, you know, so you just have to, and then, and I think that's where it goes back to having some empathy and trying to understand uh, people's perspective, you know, because there are some age groups they don't understand because they did not grow up with technology the way that some of these uh, millennials, millennials have. Right. And, and that's not just for the workforce, but also for the members. So, you know, it is, commonplace if you don't have those apps or you don't have the ability to communicate from a technology standpoint it's very frustrating for those members that people are trying to attract sure so i think that that will become more and more of a competitive edge the clubs that are tapping into uh you know just these new ways of communicating and interacting with members the last question here is, I call it the bucket list question. I ask all our guests, if there's one club out there in the world that our listeners just have to see before they die, what club would that be for you, Whitney? Um, the Stock Farm Club in Montana. It's just beautiful. <laughs> um, Kukio Beach Club in Hawaii. Okay. Just uh, outstanding. And, and what they do there is just amazing. I've been fortunate to be at places like Baker's Bay in the Bahamas, which I think you have to take two planes and a boat to get to. Oh my goodness. Wow. (laughs) But you know, that's, that's an amazing club as well. I was just at uh, the Musquamacut club last year, did some training there. That was also a beautiful place, you know, and then there, there, gosh, there's just so many big Canyon country club. Uh, Riviera is something definitely people should see. 
And, um, you know, obviously some of the more traditional clubs that are really doing a lot of great things like Charlotte Country Club, they, you know, they did a renovation, they restored their building, but when they did it, they also put in some new technology so they would be up to date, but it's not something obvious and intrusive at all. But, um, you know, there's just so many different clubs and, uh, I think that's what's important is, you know, the clubs have to be true to their brand, true to who they are, who their members are, what they want to be. And I, I, you know, where I think the most successful clubs are the ones who are able to stay true to who they are and, and, and stay on that path, even when they're getting pressure to, you know, kind of uh, venture off and do different things. So I would say all of those clubs absolutely know who they are and they have stayed true to that brand and that brand identity and it shows in everything they do. I love that answer. And there's a few clubs on that list, that one in the Bahamas you mentioned and the one out in Hawaii that I hadn't heard of. So I'm, uh, oh. I'm excited to check those out. I'll go to their websites later today. <laughs> yeah. Well, Whitney, if people want to engage your firm or work with you, how do they find out more and get in touch with you? They can uh, go to our website. That's uh, www.consultingrcs.com. Uh, or email info at consultingrcs.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. You were great to guest to have on here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Private Club Radio. Between now and next Monday when we return, make sure you tell some friends about the show. Get them subscribed either on iTunes or on Android. You can do that by going to privateclubradio.com slash subscribe and sending them those directions there. I hope you'll also leave us a voicemail with your questions so that Rick Coffey and myself can answer it right here on the show on the inbox presented by Club Essential. You can leave that voicemail right on your computer by going to privateclubradio.com slash inbox. Until we meet again next week, here's to your membership success. Just because this round is over doesn't mean you can't enjoy the 19th hole. Check out privateclubradio.com for more. Private Club Radio is brought to you by Shake Creative, the premier marketing and design firm helping prestigious clubs increase and retain their membership. Visit shaketamper.com to learn more.